0: Let us turn in our Bibles to (coughs) Zephaniah, among your minor prophets. (coughs) I'll just let you fumble around for him. (coughs) You may feel about these minor prophets about like the story I heard of the man who was (coughs) preaching in a country church and. uh, he was really holding forth, and they had a local farmer by the name of uh, Zachariah Brown who had been very much present in the church, and, but he was absent from this particular meeting, and it was a very packed meeting, and it was hot, and the preacher was waxing on and on, crowded. And uh, he was just kind of going from Genesis all the way through, and as he preached along, he finally said, and now, we, now here comes Zachariah. One of the men stood up and said, Well, you can have my seat, said, I've got you. (laughs) You may feel like, uh, Well, here comes Zephaniah, and I hope uh, that uh, this is the last of the Mount of Prophets, and it's not. There's one more, Obadiah, but I'm not going to try to deal with Obadiah. But we will look at Zephaniah. Uh, Let's read uh, some excerpts from the first chapter of Zephaniah, starting with the first verse The word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezkiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume all the things off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the land, saith the Lord. I will stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place in the name of the chimarims with the priests, and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and swear by the Lord, uh, and that swear by Malcolm." <coughs> Uh, And them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired for Him. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such as are clothed with strange apparel, In the same day also will I punish all those that leap upon the threshold, which fill their masters' houses with violence and deceit." Let us stop at that point, and we will look further in that first chapter as we go along. We read in the first verse that the word of the Lord came unto Zephaniah in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Josiah uh, was one of the outstanding men, uh, kings of Judah. Uh, prior to Josiah's time, uh, the leading previous kings had been Hezekiah and Manasseh. Hezekiah also was one of the great kings of Israel and a godly man, basically. he made some mistakes towards the end of his latter days, and lived to wish that he hadn't. Manasseh was a terrible king. We read in Second Kings the fact that Hezekiah, or Manasseh, shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. It was into this kind of situation that Josiah came as a young king, very young, and uh, he somewhat was run of the mill until the 18th year of his reign. And in the 18th year of his reign, something unusual happened. We read about it in uh, the book of Second Chronicles we read that one of the priests was laboring in the temple and was repairing some things and he discovered the book of the law and during the wicked reign of Manasseh apparently the book of the law wasn't used and had dropped almost out of existence but it was rediscovered it was brought to the king he read it he mourned over what he read, and he called for a general revival. Uh, you may want to look at this passage in Second Kings chapter 23. It says uh, that the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. Verse 3 of Second Kings 23, the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priest of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and so on and he put down the idolatrous priests and so on a great uh, reformation took place under Josiah and apparently it was produced in one respect, by this discovery of the book of the law and the reading of it. But doesn't that strike you as a somewhat overwhelming impression caused by reading the book? Wouldn't it seem that possibly there needed to be some previous preparation, uh, and then comes this reading of the book and strikes him in the heart uh, so powerfully? Apparently, There was previous preparation, and I say apparently because we cannot be positive when Zephaniah preaches, but it looks like he's addressing himself to the situation that existed uh, prior to the initiation of this Reformation. Apparently, this young preacher, very young, Zephaniah, for years had been pounding away with a certain message to the nation. And then this book is discovered and confirms what he's been saying. And the king is cut to the heart. Let's see what this young preacher had been saying that produced such a plowing up of the earth, such a softening of the heart. What was his message? We... Read briefly of it. Let's look again at the second verse of the first chapter. He says that God says that He will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. I will cut off man from off the land. I will stretch forth mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants Of Jerusalem. He speaks of judgment coming, judgment that God will send on Judah, on those who profess to be the people of God. Their state was not so much different from the state that the church is in today. The church professes to be among all peoples of the world that people that belong to God, that people that serve him, that people that know him. Uh, The Church uh, has the ordinances of God, the preaching of the word. Uh, The Church uh, compares externally, in a sense, to Israel. And yet, uh, I wonder if this message could not be addressed to the Church today. The Church in all ages is somewhat in the situation that uh, Israel was in in that day, not very different from the surrounding non-Christians, no real difference, no real evidence of a deep work in their heart. He declares judgment, and then he describes judgment in terrible terms. He says uh, in verse 7 of the first chapter, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Over and over he uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. This is the key word in Zephaniah's prophecy. You find many of the prophets using it, but over and over Zephaniah uses it more than any other prophet. The day of the Lord, judgment is coming. The day of the Lord as he pictures it is something in the near future, and yet something that foreshadows the great final judgment day. And sometimes the terms describe uh, immediate judgment to fall on Jerusalem, and sometimes it points us toward the great final judgment of all nations and all peoples. He says that the day of the Lord is at hand, it's imminent. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice... Who's the sacrifice? You. This people who profess to know me, you're the sacrifice. Who are the guests? Your enemies. I'm inviting them all to come and feast on you. The Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. It shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel and so on. All those who are sinning, he describes it uh, as a sacrifice he describes it in terms of the searching that he will do as he says in the twelfth verse it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their leaves the allusion here is to what took place in the ceremony that they went through on the Passover day on the Passover day <coughs> A part of the ceremony that God had them go through was to, with candles, search out their houses during the feasts of unleavened bread, Leaven symbolized evil. They were to search out any leaven in their homes and to put it out of their homes. God says, I'll be the one that will search out very carefully the sinner this time, and I will deal with sin, and there will be no one who will escape when I begin to deal I will search out those who are settled on their lees. This is an allusion to the way that you make wine. Wine is allowed to sit simply sit and ferment and so on. and he says this uh, this is what you've been doing. You have become settled in your spirit of rebellion, in your spirit of self-seeking, those who are inveterate in their sin, and that say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. In effect, they are saying that God is not really going to do anything. He's not really going to send judgment. God is like the other gods who have no real power or so on. This spirit of complacency, indifference to the warnings of God, how characteristic this carnal sense of security is our day if men really believed the warning of God why we couldn't hold the people in the churches men would be packing the pews hanging out the windows if they believed in their heart the warnings of God that uh, there's a broad road that leads to destruction and that the great majority of men are on that road In talking with various people that attend our church, as we call back on them in our visitation program, I found it characteristic of men that the great majority of them hedge when it comes to whether or not God will judge sinners. The great majority of the men that I talk to and I say... uh, God has given a law, yes, God has given a law. And He says that uh, this is serious, yes, that He will punish sin. Right here, I hit a block. Uh, do you think, what do you think the consequences of breaking God's law will be? And uh, very often, as a terrific reluctance to say that God will punish sinners, this is characteristic of our age. But it's not characteristic of the Bible. Uh, It's axiomatic for the writers of Scripture that God will punish sin. Payday someday. That's axiomatic for the writers of Scripture. Recently uh, examining a minister before Birmingham Presbytery, I asked the question, What will happen to those who do not turn to God through Jesus Christ? He could not say. Will there be any eternal consequences? No, he didn't think so. Why will there not be? Well, uh, such and such a philosopher didn't think there would be. What do the scriptures say? Well, the Old Testament presents a God of wrath, and the New Testament presents a God of love. Oh, no. And I turned to several passages in the New Testament and read them. It's the New Testament that says, If men died without mercy under Moses' law, from the testimony of two or three witnesses, of how much sore a punishment suppose ye shall they be thought worthy who had trodden underfoot the Son of God, and done despite under the Spirit of grace, and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith... They were sanctified, a thing of naught. That's the New Testament. It's the New Testament where Christ warned of the worm that dieth not and the fire that is not quenched. He told men to fear God, who has the power to cast body and soul into hell. This man had no answer to that type of question. And the presbytery received him. That's acceptable. But it's not biblical. judgment is coming he describes it in terrible terms The sacrifice the searching this spirit of complacency and then he dwells on the fact of the seriousness of the situation as he says in verse 14 of chapter 1 the great day of the Lord is near it is near and hasteth greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord the mighty man shall cry there bitterly that day is a day of wrath A day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress on men, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, and he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. That's characteristic of the way the Bible speaks. This isn't some isolated statement. This is from one end of Scripture to the other. The seriousness of it. Men are saying that God will not judge. Zephaniah says that he will act in human history in judgment on sin. We have to make our choice. Will we listen to the philosopher or will we listen to the prophet? It's interesting to compare Zephaniah with a New Testament prophet, in a sense, Peter. In Second Peter, Peter says that in the last days there will come scoffers walking after their own lust thinking the thoughts that they prefer to think, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. You say Christ is coming in judgment. Well, he hasn't, and it's been 2,000 years. Uh, Don't you know that uh, that 17th century theology that you're espousing? Well, I'm sorry, I thought it was 1st century. I thought it was New Testament theology. Peter goes on to say that uh, while men scoff at this, that there's another reason for this taking time. Judgment is being delayed for a purpose. Zephaniah speaks of a delay. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired. It says, call a a national assembly, call everybody together, quick, before the decree bring forth. God has decreed that he will punish sin. Before the fulfillment of this decree comes to birth here, do something quick. Call a national assembly before the day pass as the shaft, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord. And if the nation won't come together and the people in general won't, well, you who believe, you do it. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth. You who do believe these warnings and who are humble, turn and beseech him now which have wrought the judgment, who have done righteousness. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be that you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Zephaniah means uh, those that Jehovah hides. Maybe when God sends this judgment on the nation, on the world, maybe in that day, if you'll seek him earnestly, maybe, you'll be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. His people are not always protected from the temporal judgments that he sends, but sometimes they are. Pray to him about that. Seek his face, he says, quickly. As a present call, because as the tree falls, so shall it lie. If that day comes and you're not ready for it, you can't change your state afterwards. As the tree falls, so shall it lie. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He speaks of the previous care. God is delaying. He's giving you time to turn. God has previously shown great care to urge this point home to you. He hasn't done this thing on the spur of the moment. This has not come without some due preparation to you. Look at the third chapter in the sixth verse. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. You've sat and watched what happened to these other kingdoms. You saw what I did to your sister nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. You saw how I sent the Assyrians. I warned and I warned and finally I sent judgment. And I let you watch that. I didn't judge you at that time. I thought maybe you would listen and you would observe and you would learn I've cut off the nations, their towers are desolate, I made their streets waste that none pass it by, their cities are destroyed so that there is no man, there is none inhabitant. I said, surely thou wilt fear me when you see this. Thou wilt receive instruction so that your dwelling won't be cut off, howsoever I punish them. But they rose early and corrupted all their doings. They didn't listen. Second Peter says that God is delaying. Scoffers say that Christ isn't coming, but Peter said the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. It's not that God is not going to fulfill his promise or can't fulfill his promise, is unconcerned or is complacent about sin. God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but his long-suffering, He's delaying, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why the delay. Judgment, however, is determined. He says in verse 8 of that third chapter, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. The reason this took place was that they didn't receive instruction. In the third chapter, the second verse, she obeyed not the voice, she received not correction, she trusted not in the Lord, she drew not near to her God. He gave time for the people to turn in repentance, turn from going against his revealed will. Turn in obedience to his call. Turn and put their trust in him. Uh, we would say today uh, he gave time for a man to become a Christian, for a man to surrender his will to Jesus Christ, for a man to realize that he was a sinner in the sight of God, a ruined sinner, and put his trust in the only one who can save, the Lord Jesus Christ, to Cease ceased to rely on anything else except Jesus Christ to save him a sinner. He gave time to do that. This is what he was waiting for men to do, but they didn't do it. So judgment must come. He's determined that it will. The result of this judgment, as we saw, he would pour out his indignation on sinners. And to the repentant, In verse 9, then will I turn to the people of pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. He says that in verse 14, sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments, he hath cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee, thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and design, let not thine hands be slack. In other words, for those who do turn in repentance, when he finally moves in judgment, the final judgment, it will be to usher in for his own a new order where all of their enemies have been overcome where they now are one people who speak one language uh, where uh, he rejoices over them and they rejoice over him and this speaks of the prospect that awaits the Jewish people that one day God will bring them to himself I believe this will take place uh, in close connection with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe before the coming of the Lord Jesus. And I think that in one respect this prophecy is that although God will judge Israel as he has done these two thousand years, that the day will come ultimately when he would turn her again to himself, possibly in our day. But ultimately this speaks of the promises that belong to his own. Those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, who have come and committed their life to Him. The promises are true even now for you and me. Our enemies have been overcome. What are your real enemies? Your real enemies are sin and death, guilt, hell, this type of thing. The last enemy that shall be put down is death. This will be put down when Christ returns and Our bodies are raised or transformed and so on. These are the enemies that he has overcome for us. And uh, we rest in his love. He rejoices over us with joy. These are ours even now. And one day in so much fuller way will be ours if we trust in Christ Jesus. Judgment, when it comes, will bring utter ruin to the unrepentant sinner. It will usher in a new state for those who are his own, a blessed state. The sinner, the Christian, cannot be sure that he will not participate in temporal judgment, that when judgment falls on our nation, that you and I won't have to go through it. We may well suffer terribly in such, but we can be sure that we will never participate in eternal judgment. All of those deeper spiritual enemies have been taken care of by the Lord Jesus Christ. What a tremendous lesson Zephaniah has. If this is true, if there is to be a day of the Lord, anything like in the terms he describes, what's the most important thing in the world? Let you be right with him when that day comes. You say, that's selfish. No, it isn't. That's self-preservation. That's, we don't call a man selfish when he gets out of the way of a ten-ton truck. Uh, that's just common logic. most important thing you can do is be, be in Christ Jesus. Peter says, the day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night, in which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the earth shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing that we look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot or blemish. Having made your peace with God, your sins removed through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing. If you never finished college... If you never make a success in business, if you never get married, but you find Jesus Christ, you're ahead of the game. But if you are the greatest success in the world, if you finish with a magna cum laude degree, if you marry the most beautiful girl of your dreams, and yet you do not find Jesus Christ, your life has been a terrible mistake. It better for you if you'd never been born. That's the Bible. This is the message of the Bible. Just in plain, old, bold, clear-cut, simple terms, flee from the wrath to come. You are blessed if you have turned from serving idols to serve the living and true God and to flee from the wrath to come. What is the most important thing you can now do if you've done that? To help other people turn. This is, this is crucial. On one occasion, uh, a minister was stirred up to a new, a new zeal in evangelism by an atheist. When the atheist told him, he said, If I believed what you believe, I wouldn't I would pass a man on the street without falling down and begging him, pleading with him to receive Jesus Christ that very moment, if I really believed what you say you believe. You and I really do believe that. And while falling down on the street and grabbing him may not be the best way to get him to do it, nonetheless, that kind of an attitude of this is the great thing that we are about must characterize our lives those who are settled on their leaves who are present, those who are complacent in a false security, those who say the Lord will do neither good nor evil, I would urge you to simply read again in the scriptures. And read with a humble spirit and see if God doesn't speak to your heart. You know, it's been my experience that most of the people that I talk to And they have this attitude of God will do neither good nor evil that time we consider what God has done in Jesus Christ and time we look at a few passages of Scripture, there's something in their heart that responds and says, Yes, deep within, I know that I've just been fooling myself that God is that way and this is true and I must do something about it. To you who are settled on your leaves tonight, Will you do something about it? Will you abandon your false security and commit your life in earnest to Jesus Christ? And for those who have already done this, will you be thankful? Will you rejoice in the Lord as if you were the richest person in the world? Because you are. You have eternal riches. And the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee. Oh, he says, "Sing, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O Israel! Shout, you people of God! Be glad and rejoice with all the heart. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He's cast out thine enemy, the king of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee, and thou shalt not see evil any more."